The scripture reading for this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 12, and you'll be able to find that on page 322 of your pew Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Up to this point in the book of Samuel, the nation of Israel has been gathered together under one king, King Saul, who has been anointed. Then uh, their first great opposition comes from a king of a neighboring country. The king's name is Nahash, the Ammonites, and he encamps against one of the cities of Israel. And then Saul gathers his people together and they march through the night and they defeat Nahash the Ammonite. And this confirms his kingship in the eyes of many, many people. And so they go to uh, reaffirm the kingship at Gilgal. And after they've reaffirmed the kingship of Saul and ultimately the kingship of God, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We read here, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated, whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I accepted any, received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I might reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hand of your enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is a king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, 
If you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your fathers. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things, which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, why do drug dealers still live with their moms? This question was asked by the University of Chicago economist Stephen Levitt, and apparently it's a real thing. Speaking with the leader named JT of the Black Disciple Gang, he found out that the reason for this was because drug runners, although often being used in dangerous areas and being exposed to police and violence, they only actually make about $3.30 an hour. He says these runners only worked these almost impossible jobs in hope of one day moving up the gang hierarchy. The boss and a few higher-ups of the gang were the ones who made the big cheddar. The possibility that a runner would become a higher-up was slim to none, yet for people from these poor neighborhoods, slim was better than nothing. He goes on to say, this Real-life example demonstrates the economic principle that conventional wisdom is often wrong. Just because citizens are involved in high-crime jobs like selling drugs does not mean they make much money. People think that with such a huge supply of drugs on the street that business must be incredibly profitable, but in reality, only a few make amounts worth bragging about, while the rest of the lower drug foot soldiers are still so poor that they have to live with their mothers. When you're in that life, as a drug dealer, living in the home of your mother, for some there's a moment in which they come to realize what exactly is going on. I'm putting my life on the line here, day in and day out, quite literally in a lot of cases, they think. And for what reason? They ask themselves, what in the world am I doing? 
What have I done with my life? I'm headed for disaster. How do I get out of this? In some cases, they don't know. There honestly doesn't seem to be an escape. And they fall back into the life into which they came and die at the wrong end of a gun. But in other cases, someone enters into their lives. In other cases, an event happens. Maybe they're arrested by a police officer and taken away. Maybe somebody in their family or a friend is able to intervene and speak to them. And somebody is able to come with a message. There's grace. You don't have to be tied up in this life forever. And they get an opportunity for a new start and a new life. In our passage today, we see the nation of Israel reaching this realization as well. What have we done? They come to realize how near they are to disaster. And yet we still see a beautiful message of grace being extended to them at the end. And so we'll see this under the following theme and points. Actions have consequences. Turn to the Lord. We'll see, first of all, a pattern of heart, a sincere repentance, and finally a compassionate mediator. So as we saw when we first read this passage, the last chapter had ended with an amazing victory for the people of Israel. Saul and his armies had marched through the night. They had surprised King Nahash and the Ammonite army early in the morning hours, just as the sun was beginning to rise. And they fought against them until the sun was high. They shattered the Ammonite forces to such an extent that the Bible says no two of them were left together. The people are feeling good at this moment. They are riding a high, they're feeling successful, and now with the whole nation finally united under their king, as we saw at the end of chapter 11, their new king Saul, they have a ceremony in which everybody now finally has the opportunity to recognize him as king, even those who had rejected and made fun of him before. Yet, even those Though they rejected him and they made fun of him, even those get an opportunity for a fresh start. Because as King Saul said, the Lord gave them the victory here today. The ceremony that happens takes place at Gilgal, a place of new beginnings. This is where the covenant had been renewed for the first time with the people just after they had crossed over the Jordan River and entered into the promised land for the first time. Here the whole nation was circumcised and they reaffirmed their dedication to the Lord, leaving behind a mountain of foreskins, Joshua 5 verse 3, hence the name. So it's appropriate that they should renew the kingship here. It's a new beginning for the people. They are coming into a new era of history for the nation. But it's at this moment that Samuel takes the time to point out the seriousness of their heart problem. Before this, Israel didn't see asking for a king as part of a heart problem. There was a threat on their borders. They saw the nations around them and they found a solution. 
And so they went to Samuel and said, there, I want that, what those other nations have. I bet that will be the solution to all of our problems. This is a tactic that we often take as well when we run into trouble. We don't take the time to look deeper. We want a band-aid solution. The thing is that if it's a band-aid kind of problem, then that's fine. But if you've got blood poisoning coming out of the wound, it's not going to help. And then we need to take a step back and look at the big picture to diagnose what's going on. Which is exactly what Samuel does in our passage today. First, he begins by establishing his he begins by establishing his position there. He points out to the people that he has done nothing wrong against them. He hasn't taken them advantage of them in any way. And once they themselves come to this conclusion, they're like, yeah, that's true. He's able to begin to speak to them in a way that carries a whole lot more weight because they recognize that he's been faithfully serving them all of these years. Now, he said, you ask for a king, and I gave you a king. Giving them a king didn't do anything to change their covenant relationship with God in itself. God had even made rules beforehand on how a king was to reign over his people, so they knew that having a king in itself wasn't a problem. But then Samuel goes on to point out a disturbing pattern in the verses that follow in their lives. He goes back to when they were first brought into the land and he points out, God is so good to you. He's so patient. He's faithful to this covenant. And you have been able to see this time and time again to you. That's even despite what you tend to do. And to illustrate this, he gives Israel five examples of how God has stepped into their lives, how God has delivered them Stretching from Moses to the present day. This is often what it takes. You see a dear friend who makes a decision which in itself is not necessarily a bad decision. But you see it as part of a pattern in their lives which points out a heart problem. And you warn them because you care about them. You begin by going back in history with them and you start drawing out every step of that pattern to show them, look, this is something that's going on in your life. If you're on the receiving end of this, it can be easy to get your back up. It can be hard to accept. But take a moment to reflect on what they're saying. Is there a pattern that they're seeing that you yourself might be blind to? Are they trying to point you to the Lord through showing you this pattern? This was certainly the case of Samuel. He's using a series of events from the history of Israel to show them that what they've forgotten about God. One theologian points out that these five illustrations, they remind Israel of two simple yet profound theological truths. First, it's the Lord alone, not kings, not weapons, not alliances. It's the Lord alone who rescues his people from foreign oppressors. 
though he does so through specially chosen human beings. Second, Yahweh rescues his people in response to their prayers and repentance. Samuel's saying, you've forgotten this. God's been faithful to you, and yet you keep on looking elsewhere for deliverance. There's nothing wrong with wanting a king, and so I gave you a king. But there's everything wrong with looking to that king for deliverance instead of looking to the Lord. Israel, you're living with a sinful pattern of heart. And this brings us to our second point. Although Samuel himself has been able to establish his credentials in front of the people, this in itself might not carry enough weight for the people themselves. After all, he has been there year after year, serving among them, living among them, helping them and guiding them. So in addition to this firm rebuke that Samuel gives the people, God then gives his people a sign through Samuel. We read in verse 18, the Lord sent thunder and rain. To us, this might not seem like a big deal, especially if we're not farmers. A bad thunderstorm here in Gray County might, like in Israel, be a problem. It would damage the heads of ripe grain, causing grains of wheat to fall to the ground and maybe lessening the harvest. But would this be reason enough for the great fear that falls on the people of Israel? Would a badly timed rainstorm have the same effect on us personally today? Well, there's two things to think about in connection with this. First, the timing. This happened right after Samuel's prayer. Those people who were thinking that God was off and distant, not super involved in the day-to-day lives of the Israelites, they got a rude awakening. God is there. He was listening. And he agreed with Samuel. But what was even more frightening was the fact that by rejecting God in the way they had, they realized that they have become covenant breakers. We read in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 of the many good things that come with following God. There were many blessings that came with obedience. But in these same chapters, we find that there's also curses that come with disobedience. You see, the promised land was something that came out of God's covenant with his people, that relationship that he had established with his people. It was promised by him to them, and he gave it to them in answer to that promise. But in giving them the land, we can see in those passages from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that God did something unique, something something that was special, something that he has never done before and something that he's never done since. He made the covenant land the promised land reflect his relationship with the people. Pay attention to this quote from a commentary for a moment. Why were the Israelites so moved by this event? Because they understood that this disruption of the God-ordained pattern for the natural world 
mirrored Israel's disruption of the God-ordained pattern of relationship that was to exist between the nation and the Lord. So there's a mirror going on here. What's happening in the land is a reflection of what's going on between the nation and God. As Israel moved out of her proper orbit in relation to the Lord, the Lord had ordained that nature would move out of its proper orbit with the people. The present demonstration of this truth terrified the Israelites, for they understood it to be a precursor, that is, to be something that comes before the more severe disturbances of nature described in the Torah. So why were they so greatly afraid? They were suddenly reminded of all of the covenant curses. They were reminded that their rebellion was against God was tied to the land. And the damage that happened to mirror the rebellion that they had against God was only a tiny taste of the covenant curses that ought to have fallen on them, that could still fall on them. But it wasn't just any fear that fell on them. The word that's used in Hebrew for fear in this situation is a holy fear. It's a word that means more broadly to fear, to reverence, to honor God. It's to have a healthy respect for God. Suddenly they've been made aware of how they are living in relation to him and been made aware of his immense power, his sovereign justice, his perfect righteousness, his inescapable holiness. And so this awareness is what drives their fear. Now, if you're working, for example, with big animals like horses, you be careful around them. You don't treat them lightly. Once you start becoming careless, that's when accidents happen. Guns can be a really good tool as well. And if you're firing guns at a skeet shooting range, but if you're firing guns at a skeet shooting range and you don't have a healthy respect for them, it can lead to disaster for you and for those around you. You have a healthy fear for these things. You have a respect for these things. If this is true with inanimate objects, how much more true is this with regards to God himself? As we read in Hebrews 10 verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Israelites were brought to the same realization that we ourselves have been brought to today. We cannot be reckless or complacent when it comes to our relationship with God. Having been woken up to this truth, Israel sits up and takes notice. Like a man who's been sleepwalking towards a cliff and has been rudely awakened, they're suddenly rubbing their eyes and realizing how badly their mistreatment of their relationship with God could have gone. And so they fear God. They cry out to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we've added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They finally realize the truth of what Samuel has been saying all along. They finally see the pattern of their hearts. 
They weren't asking for something that was wrong in itself. They weren't asking for something that was outside of the reach of what God was graciously willing to offer them. But the fact that their choice came out of their rejection of God's protection, his leadership and his kingship, that was the problem. And so they humble themselves before God, and they humble themselves before God's servant Samuel, asking, pray for us that we may not die. They're finally acknowledging that they truly deserve what they truly deserve before God because of their sin. Because as we read in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. They know that if God were to carry through with his justice, they've broken his law and they've abandoned them and therefore are deserving of anything that he sends their way. Only a mediator can save them now. And this brings us to our third point, a compassionate mediator. So Israel's seen this thunderstorm. And they've seen this rain that's fallen down from heaven on their crops. They've suddenly recognized how close to disaster they were truly coming. And so they've cried out for help. Samuel doesn't leave them hanging for long. He had every opportunity to savor this moment, to rub it in, but he doesn't. Instead, he responds with deep compassion for his people. Do not fear, he says. The word for fear is the exact same word for fear that we found above. It's that reverent fear that filled their hearts as they saw God's righteous anger against their sin. But the moment that they come in repentance and faith, asking for Samuel to be their mediator, to be their go-between, to be the one who will address God on their behalf, their need for fear disappears. Do not fear, Samuel says. The reverence and respect remains, but the terror is gone. Why? Did the sin disappear? Certainly not. Samuel says in verse 20, you have done all this wickedness. There it is, right out in the open. But God in his mercy doesn't let sin be the end of the road. He didn't then, and he doesn't today either. Into, we, we live in a world today in which we may not have a, a proper understanding of this because we live in a world today in which there is very little forgiveness, actually. This can be reflected in what you've maybe read in the news the last little while. The actor Liam Neeson, for example, he confessed a terrible sin to the media recently. He spoke about how horrible it was and about how it awakened in him a recognition. What are you doing He spoke about the many lessons that he learned from it over the decades that had passed since then. How he's changed and how he'll never go back. But that's not enough for society. There is a growing movement that's calling for his removal from the films that he's acting in and for the destruction of his career. They're filled with self-righteous loathing and indignation. They would never do anything like that. 
And anyone who does should never be given a chance for redemption. Maybe you yourself have faced this. Maybe you yourself have been on the receiving end of an attitude like this. I would never do what you've done. But imagine if God worked that way. I would never do that. So it doesn't matter how sore you've been. I'm punishing you. Imagine if God worked that way. But he doesn't. Instead, God responds with compassion and love towards his repentant people. You have done all this wickedness. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn aside, for then you'd go after empty things that cannot profit, that cannot deliver, because they are nothing. Following the Lord is the only true way to find help. Following the Lord is the only way to find deliverance. You'll notice that Samuel here points out that there are really only two options. You follow the Lord or you go after empty things. This is a gentle warning to us. There is no middle ground in which we don't follow the Lord but just coast. When we stop following the Lord, we end up going after empty things that cannot deliver us because they're nothing. But it's also an encouragement to us when we fall into sin not to throw up our hands and think, God's done with me and to walk away. There is no deliverance elsewhere. But with the Lord, there is deliverance. With the Lord, there is salvation. With the Lord, there is an opportunity for redemption. Israel experienced this in part with the intercession and the prayers of Samuel who acted as a mediator in the face of Israel's repentance. But at the end of the day, Samuel was just a broken and sinful man himself. At the end of the day, Samuel was only pointing forward to the one who was coming. The one who was the perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. The one who didn't just intervene for us, but the one who saved us. You have sinned, he says. But the Lord is the one who takes that sin on himself. Far be it from me that I should not pray for you, Samuel had said to his people. And he had said this to them because he had a proven track record of love for them. He'd faithfully served them. He'd never defrauded them or taken advantage of them. And he'd done everything that they had asked for. Far be it from me that I shouldn't intercede for you. How much more is that not true for Jesus Christ? We read together in our confession, the Belgic Confession, Belgic Confession, Article 26, where it says, For this purpose, Jesus Christ became man, uniting together the divine and human nature that we might not be barred from, but rather that we might have access to the divine majesty. This mediator, 
however, whom the Lord has ordained between himself and us, he shouldn't frighten us by his greatness so that we look elsewhere according to our fancy. There is no creature in heaven or on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. If he was willing to die for us, how much more will he not be willing to continue with us, to continue to intercede for us, to speak on our behalf? When you wake up and you shake yourself and you wonder, what am I doing? Don't doubt his commitment to you even in the face of your own unfaithfulness. Rather, trust in him. Trust in his compassion and turn again to the Lord in repentance and faith, beloved. Finding yourself caught in sin again this coming week, look to Jesus again. And then in the words of Psalm 103, you'll find the truth of this, of his love towards us. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. For Jesus' sake, for the sake of our mediator, this is true for us today. So, beloved, look to this mediator in faith as you repent. Lean on his perfect sacrifice and rest in his perfect love. Amen.